Hello there and welcome to Wildlife Heroes, Caring for the Carers, the podcast that takes care of wildlife volunteers. There are over 15,000 wildlife volunteers around the country. So the Foundation for National Parks and Wildlife is aiming to start a mental health conversation around the five key topics that worry you most. Personal well-being, supporting others, being a climate warrior, community conflict, and today the pressures of being present and working through catastrophic events. As we know, Australia is a land of extremes. At any given time around the country, there might be fire, flood, drought, cyclones, which, when combined with human activity, put our wildlife under grave threat. We step up again and again, but how do we cope? In each episode, we'll get to know an individual wildlife volunteer around our theme, and then with a guest psychologist, we'll look at how that situation might reflect broader experiences in the carer community. And as we record, we're in the midst of the COVID-19 virus, which will be adding extra stress to individuals and communities around the country. So it's in that context and after the terrible bushfires of this summer that we're recording today, and that might influence the way that we speak about things. I'm Gretchen Miller. I'm an audio documentary maker and podcaster with a long-standing passion for discussing how we as humans intersect with our natural world. With us in the studio, we've got psychologist Lynn Page from the Illawarra on the New South Wales coast, where she runs her practice. She's also a volunteer field psychologist with the Red Cross and a member of the Disaster Response Network with the Australian Psychological Society. And she's also a TAFE senior counsellor. And joining us on the line because of the COVID-19 virus, volunteer Jessie Drew-Smythe, a WIRES volunteer and bat carer studying environmental biology at the University of Technology in Sydney. Welcome very much to you both. I'm so glad to be talking with you at this time and thanks for joining us. Jessie, I'd like to start with you. How long have you been caring for bats? So I've been involved in bat rescue for about five, going on six years now. So I started on bats after being involved in wildlife rescue for about a year. So the majority of my rescue career. (laughs) And what made you want to get involved in wildlife rescue? Honestly, there was no kind of triggering point. I'd always admired animals growing up. I felt quite a deep connection with a lot of different animals that I'd see around, particularly with bats as well. I remember them having such a distinct presence throughout my upbringing, I suppose, either watching them fly out each night because we lived near a colony or even just going to see the colony at the botanical gardens before they were dispersed. We had a lot of picnics there. But aside from that, it was really just honestly wanting to work with animals. I know that's a lot of people's dream, but it was also just being able to feel like I could help as well because when I was first getting into it that's when we were I suppose climate change has been a topic of discussion for a while but it's for me personally when things were noticeable things were changing in the environment particularly in urban environments and I just really wanted to be part of that support for the voiceless. Thank you the voiceless is exactly the point I wonder if you can reflect on what it brought you when you first started 
I guess being hand to hand with animals, putting your hands on animals, caring for them, doing that incredibly intensive labour. When I did start getting into wildlife rescue, I personally was dealing with a bit of a mental health thing. Um, So what I found in my wildlife rescue, and obviously it took quite a while before I was competent to work on my own, I suppose, but I did find that it gave me this sense of exactly that, a bit of a purpose, a bit of a, a reason for being around and something that would help me get on with everything day to day because it made it something that was more than myself. It wasn't just about me and what I was going to do that day. It was about who I was going to save that day. And that definitely was something important and something that I needed to hang on to. A lot of people look at people who work with animals or volunteer with animals and think it's this glamorous, cuddle all the fluffy things kind of thing to do. And it's not. You get a lot of bites, a lot of scratches, and you've got to be very careful. Unfortunately, wildlife are not like domestic pets. They don't really like a cuddle. So you've got to try and be there for them from a distance and understand what they're trying to tell you through behaviour. But it definitely was the best decision and the hardest decision I've ever made to start doing it and to continue it for so long. How remarkable. How do you feel about the animals you care for as these little individuals come into your life? I love each and every one of them. I know it's quite a simple way to put it, but each one, particularly because I tend to do a lot of raising of orphans, I suppose, flying foxes mainly at the moment. And each one is honestly just my baby. I think about so many of them all the time when you see updates on what's going on in the environment, particularly, of course, the bushfires recently. There are so many of my previous patients, previous kids, whatever you want to call them, that are out there, well, hopefully still out there, and not a day goes by when you don't think about them. But each day, my day-to-day was structured around their feeds. The flying foxes need to have at least four to five feeds per day. So often throughout the night, you're getting up and all throughout the day, you're making sure that you can be home at least once every four hours so they can get that feed. It really does take over your life, but it feels the same as having a dependent child, I suppose. So it's difficult not to build that bond with them. Can you describe for us the catastrophe you were caught up in in 2018 in Campbelltown in Western Sydney? So that was one of the many heat stress events that we had that year for a flying fox colony. What happened was quite confronting for me. It would have been confronting for anyone. It was confronting for everyone who was there. Essentially, when flying foxes are exposed to temperatures above 40 degrees, they start to struggle because they can't regulate their temperature well enough to cool themselves down. So what happens is at these temperatures, they do start dropping dead. So when I arrived there, there had been some other volunteers on site already who were working with finding the most vulnerable, rehydration, unfortunately, as well as that collecting dead. Can you set the scene for us a bit? So this colony is a relatively small colony. At that time, it only had an estimated between five to 600 individuals part of that colony. It was nestled off. It was away from people um, all around this kind of creek, quite dense vegetation. And essentially, you walk into the area where there were some triage volunteers and there was already a collection of bodies, unfortunately, because they were counting them because it's important for statistics that we know what the death toll is. So even just walking straight in there was quite um, overwhelming, particularly for me because most of my experience with bats has been raising the young. So seeing all of these young bats lying on the ground completely lifeless, it definitely was food for thought in terms of the previous experiences I've had with them. 
what we did, we ran in, we were really split up into teams. There was a triage team, which were just kind of sitting at the entrance to the bushland. And they were equipped with subcutaneous fluid administration tools and cages as well for any of them that we needed to bring home with us. And there were people walking around with misting hoses, I suppose, kind of like a backpack container with water. And then they were just lightly spraying around just to lower the heat in the microclimate within the colony. And then the rest of us were honestly just walking everywhere we could and grabbing anything alive that we saw. I was constantly hearing drops into the creek. Unfortunately, a lot of the trees overhung the creek and a lot of the the baby flying foxes were just falling straight in. And every single one you heard was just a reminder of how many we weren't going to be able to save. Mm, Very confronting imagery you're describing here. How did you feel as you went about these rescues? I do have to say the adrenaline kicked in almost immediately as soon as I got there. As much as it was a devastating and overwhelming scene and thing to be a part of, that superhero drive comes in and I knew I was there for a purpose and that purpose was to save as many lives as I could. And obviously we do that to a certain extent because we do need to think about what kind of capacity we have with carers if we are going to bring any into care. But my priority was just to grab all of the ones I could. So yes, I absolutely did feel like Tarzan. I was hanging off of trees to kind of lean out over the creek because there was one that was just about to fall in and I wasn't going to let that happen whilst I was doing that. Another person who was there helping actually walked past and said, yeah, I don't actually think you're going to get that one down. But I did. And that was a huge, huge deal for me. But looking back on it, it is actually one of my most proudest moments. As the event unfolded, what were your thoughts? Where do we stop, I suppose, was a big one. Like, at what point do we stop looking? because I just didn't want to. (laughs) It was difficult to collect my thoughts because it was just so many different things happening at the same time. Where are the other people? Have I gone too far? Is there this one bat that's just hiding somewhere that I can't see? And if I don't see it, that's going to be left behind. Lots of different thoughts, but really just um, prioritising saving as many lives as possible. It's, It's a bit difficult to go back and think clearly about what my thought processes were because in some ways they were quite direct in in the task at hand and in some ways they were all over the place. Lynn, let's bring you in here. Is this Tarzan unstoppable feeling that Jesse had a typical reaction to a wildlife carer responding to a catastrophic event? Yes, she was pretty well running on adrenaline then and it is very effective in focusing you and when she says something like, I can't really tell you what my thoughts were, that's exactly right. She wasn't going to be thinking about what might I do or making any decisions. That's not the time. She was very singly focused on a task and that's fantastic for the short term. And in the medium and longer term? Well, in the medium and longer term, you're running on a stress response, which is effective for a task, but we need to know how to turn that off because our bodies tire and run out from that. And it makes it very difficult to go back to normal life because that kind of behaviour is not necessarily useful for connecting with other people, thinking about what you might do in your normal day-to-day work. And it's not terribly good for things like your immune system, your digestion, those sorts of things too. What other responses might a carer have to seeing such devastation around them? Look, in the short term, 
That's the appropriate response. It protects you from thinking too hard about it. If I stop to think about how really sad it is what I'm hearing about, I'd just not be able to think much. So it's very effective short term. What needs to happen is around the event. There needs to be structures to allow the recovery time and the preparation time too. It was interesting when Jessie said that she hadn't struck anything like that before. One of the things that will really protect you is being able to plan, okay, this is something I might come into, how might I feel, what might I think, and really have a, a clearer idea because sometimes I've had, I remember having a mother that was caught in an earthquake and she was a psychologist and she thought, I can override anything that happens and I can look after my children. She actually froze. She went into a complete freeze, couldn't think, couldn't do anything. And she was quite upset about that. And people I've spoken to who said, oh, look, I'll probably fall apart and do. They're okay. <laughs> well, they're less concerned. So sometimes it's when that you really react differently to how you expect. So that preparation beforehand with anything is helpful. And a wildlife carer can expect to hit a catastrophic event at least once in their caring career and given our current circumstances more than once. What would you do? What would you advise a carer who finds themselves in a situation like that and they do have an anxiety attack? What would you recommend that they do in order to then move in to pick up the responsibilities? I think for everybody, you don't ever really know what's going to happen. You can prepare as much as you like around it. But there are things like people have anxiety as a condition and they can get help. Obviously, they can talk to a psychologist about generally managing that. But in areas like other volunteer organisations, there's a lot of training. There's a network. There's a group that you have a team. There's structures around pre-briefing as well as pre and post communication with people. Sometimes it's literally hearing what other people do and how they manage it, what was like the first time for them. So that kind of sharing and contact I think is really important. It's really interesting, actually. I'm thinking that as a carer, you might find yourself in one of two situations. One is that you're part of a mobilisation, so you're working with other people. And I imagine that that's actually the ideal because you've got support, psychological as well as physical and material with equipment and so on. But you might also find yourself in a situation where you're on your own and you need to work quickly. So I'm quite interested in that idea of what you might do if you don't have that support. I wonder how, I'm almost thinking that one might need to remember to breathe, for example, and that this might help ground you in your situation and give you the courage to continue. Definitely. I mean, bringing yourself into the moment sometimes can be useful physically. Sometimes it can't, depending on whether there's a level of overwhelm or not. What I hear from carers is that they focus on what they're there for, the bigger picture. Jesse mentioned earlier the sense of purpose and purpose meaning they're the absolute foundations of positive psychology well-being. And that's where if you can just keep the balance, the caring and the rescuing is an incredibly healthy thing to do. So it's often only if it tips into an overwhelm where it just becomes too much and then it's a matter of helping you pull back to what you're there for, what's happening. If you did feel that overwhelm, what would you recommend? Would you recommend walking away, sitting down, getting water? <laughs> <laughs> Might not be quite feasible at the time. I, I can remember doing some field work in Japan. I was fine until I looked down at my feet and there was a little plastic heart and it was obviously a little girl's toy. 
and then it hit. I was standing on this little girl's bedroom, obviously, and that was a, a toy. And then I just thought, oh, I'm going to lose this. This is going to be really embarrassing. This is the, and I guess it was like, okay, this is what I do. This is my job. This is what I'm here for. And this is a body sensation. It's tight in the chest. My breathing's going up. Okay, that's really interesting. Wow, this is what a real overwhelm looks like. And that takes practice. So I would really encourage anyone that's in any of these areas to think about you don't do the training and the sit-ups and everything when you have to lift the heavy thing. You do it beforehand. (laughs) You do things to work on managing your mental health and mental strength and you don't do it in the middle of a disaster. (laughs) Yeah, okay, so you call on your reserves. Jessie, did you feel overwhelmed at all during your experience or after? Not during but afterwards, definitely. So after doing all the run-throughs and collecting as many as we could, 11 of the 13 pups that were actually rescued from that site came back with another carer and myself and we proceeded to stay up until about 1 or 2 a.m., I can't really remember, just going through each one, assessing injuries, getting them rehydrated, putting identification on them so we knew who was who, working out where they were going to go and it just kind of didn't end. So after that adrenaline was hitting me and and while I was running around grabbing babies left, right and centre, it starts wearing off and you start getting really tired. And honestly, I do have some anxiety issues already. So as that adrenaline came down, the fact of what had just occurred and what I'd just been a part of hit me that you don't get to stop. You just have to keep going. And again, it's for these individual animals. So it was definitely quite overwhelming afterwards because it was kind of that realisation of, okay, this has just happened and I'm processing it, but I can't do anything about it right now. So I just have to keep going. Look, I understand it completely. I'd be looking like anything at at two levels, what you can change and then looking at managing what you can't. So I think there's a, a huge amount of growing interest and support for exactly that sort of situation. We're structured in our society that we can't leave people on the road dying, but it's optional with animals or wildlife. We still don't have the layers of support where you might do an emergency triage with a person, then you hand over to the hospital and then the general nurses that were well slept, et cetera, et cetera. This is going from a a major rescue adrenaline hit to the same person turning around and as they're coming down and they're losing that protective adrenaline, which means they're not feeling a lot in that sense, all of a sudden they're having to continue to do work with an injured animal, the care, the connections kicking in, and that's tough. That is really tough. That's where with humans somebody else would be taking over. So I think I'd be looking bigger picture at how to manage exactly that point for the mental health and physical health of the carers. And it may be that's where a bigger picture and an organisational response is needed at an individual level. I think that's where what drew me to trying to help the carers from other volunteer organisations that are already established, they are in this situation where that doesn't happen and they do have to often euthanise the animal they've been caring for. And I think that would be really distressing and Mm. I would find that incredibly distressing. Jessie, how many bats did you see die that day? By the time we left the site, we had the count tally of uh, dead pups was 200 and four adults. The next day, rangers went out for a follow-up check and found a further 100 pups deceased. So if you look at the scale of that colony that was only about five to 600, they lost about half in that one event. 
And you brought back 11 or 12. So yes, what I do understand from what you told me before is that, in fact, because you were keeping pups also watered and, and sort of sprayed and cool, it could have been a lot worse. But in terms of animals sort of brought home versus the death rate, that's proportionately, it's quite small. How do you manage that feeling of, okay, well, that's what we were able to save out of all of those pups? Honestly, for me, and collectively, I think as well, is we all know what is within our means. Most of us by that point were already pushed beyond our means. Because this happened in January, a lot of us still had pups in care that we'd been raising that season. January is also a really awful time for fruit netting entanglement for flying foxes. So that's part of the reason that 11 came back with us and only two of the remaining pups that were rescued did go home with other carers. So there were a few, particularly, I believe there are a couple of adults that we we did rehydrate, assess for a while and then just pop back up in the colony. And as best you can do that, it does tend to be better for the carers because more animals means more care obligation and that means a decline in the quality of that care and also a decline in whatever other aspects of your life are going on. And it's about knowing, I suppose, what we can do ends. What is that point that we have to make these decisions? It's an incredibly mature and insightful response there, I think, Lynn, you'd agree. Can you talk a little bit, Lynn, to what Jesse has to say there and how one comes to grips with those nuanced and complex understandings of what it is you do in the big picture? In this case where, as you say, the, the wildlife are voiceless, it's about a, a bigger picture understanding of the volunteer role around your place in what can be done, what can't be done, and being able to get that space. We talked before about empathic distress as being when you're just too distressed by everything and to be able to pull back and see it bigger picture, this is just what I could do and focus on that one or two things that you could do and make meaning out of it and is about as effective as you can get. And the other thing is to just talk it through. It's not about just having a chat. It is really the way people recover is talking. It's processing what's happened. So find someone to talk to. So in the aftermath, you get home, you're exhausted, you have traumatised animals with you. What should you do for self-care to allow you to do that last push to the finish line as Jessie had to, to one or two in the morning? What can you do to take a minute or two for yourself before you step back in? Oh, there's a few things. I mean, you can be noticing what's going on. Try and stay as much as you can in the moment with a compassion for yourself because we often just dissociate to cope. But it's like I say to my younger patients, you can't lose weight off one leg. If you start dissociating, you don't feel any sort of pleasure either. So I think it's about being aware of what's happening but also focusing on what you are doing that's good and purposeful and the meaning of it and noticing your thinking, bringing it back to where you want to be, what your intention is, your intention is to look after these animals and just managing that and connecting with something that you can feel some positive emotion. It might be a pet, might be a not perhaps the wildlife you're caring for, but it might be the, you know, just stopping, looking at your dog, connecting, patting and just, okay, a bit more energy now, I can go back to it. 
and then all of the other things. And I imagine just the simple things, cup of tea, something to eat. We ordered a pizza. (laughs) (laughs) That was our coping mechanism. (laughs) Nice work. Good idea. And over the next 24 hours, Lynn, what are some of the scenarios for how you'll feel? And are there warning signs for self-care? Yes, the literature from Dr. Gordon, he talks about cleave lines and um, in bigger picture events like 9-11, they cleave as a group and short term it's very useful. So the word cleave means to come together. Like the group in a fire or in an event come together and that's very adaptive. It's useful to come together as an identified group. We are the people that were involved in this. The difficulty is getting to uncleave back into your community and your family And there tends to be that sort of nobody else knows what we've been through. No one understands what we're doing. And I think as an individual event like that day with the bats or a bigger picture event like over the fires or even a larger event as a group of carers as opposed to other people involved, there's that coming together which is very useful short term when the problems are around when it's difficult to reconnect again and get back into so-called the real world. And I imagine in some ways that the pressure, the intensity of the experience, plus the real extra strong bonding that that cleaving creates, that coming together creates, can become quite addictive. Yes. I know from working with another very large volunteer organisation that the volunteers would never want an event to happen, but they'll walk over broken glass to be there. Look, it's very good for people's health to be doing something for other people. They're focusing outwards. They're focusing on doing something that's meaningful. Mm. And yet the addiction side of it, the walking over broken glass and perhaps leaving behind other relationships might become problematic. As a carer, should one look out for that? Yes, they're the flags that, and this is something that we'd like to be able to set up with the other volunteers. Often there'd be an independent person that would ring up after they came back from an event. How are you travelling? Are you noticing anything different? And just checking in on that reconnection because, yeah, they're the things that you notice. And with the carers, there are a, a number of things that were different in exactly what Jesse was saying. They don't get the opportunity. To, there's not that beginning and then end to an event that's as clear as that. It's ongoing in many ways. So that event recovery where the adrenaline has a, a really good role, but the recovery of coming back and re-engaging with people, moving into that more caring and recovery stage doesn't kick in. So it's looking for how to try and manage the task and also look at stopping and helping yourself to physically recover. And it's difficult. Self-care is probably the bottom of their list. The only other people that are vaguely close to it's my profession. We're not great at it either. We know the theory a lot better, though. (laughs) Even the most reflective of us can forget to do this. But I wonder if advice for carers is making sure that they do get five minutes just to sit down and take stock of their day with or without a catastrophic event. Just remembering, putting it in your calendar, time to take stock. There's a whole range of things that people do and for a a carer going out to a social gathering and reconnecting with other people, doing other things, Maybe not their favourite thing to do, but it's about finding what it is that for you helps you just take that breath and it may be 
going outside and just looking at the environment, just simply going and looking how many colour greens can you see and just getting back into the moment and just giving yourself a bit of a chance to settle down. Yes, I think this is where social media can come into its own. Lynn, I'm thinking about Jessie being a relatively young carer, but for many of our older, more experienced and more battle-worn listeners with decades behind them, can we talk about reaching breaking points? So, for example, those who were rescuing during the fires this past summer would have been some of our very experienced carers who may well just be feeling so overwhelmed and at the point of breaking, if you start to feel yourself in that space, what should you do? I think it's important that we acknowledge that people have a right to do to some extent what they choose to do and the veteran carers, as in the veteran from other volunteer agencies I've worked with, choose to go till they drop and they've said it, this is what we do. Sometimes I think the hope is with the younger people like Jessie who've been able to articulate the mental health principles and people don't take kindly to being told what to do and, you know, your mental health sort of seems to be deteriorating. You need to fix it. Um, Yes, definitely don't do that to anyone you know, but perhaps it's worth time to reflect and look at yourself and just ask yourself those kind questions. Where am I at? Yeah, I think one of the indicators is when there starts to be conflict in the organisation, when you find that there's conflict in the groups. It's a sign that things may need to be looked at or changed. It's a very common thing that happens. What's not helpful is that if there's a group that's in conflict with each other, it's not a drawcard for new people. So that can be a bit of a catch-22 that needs some attention around that. So that's where it is a problem starting out by at least acknowledging and and saying as things get stressful in the middle of events, you'll expect that any group, there's usually the phase where everyone pulls together and then there's a lot of criticism and that kind of thing. But one of the hardest questions that has come up when I've interviewed very experienced leaders in the wildlife caring sector is getting people to acknowledge that they are not functioning very well. They're angry, they're critical, they're tired. And the question keeps coming up, how do you get them to see that and do something about it? It's a tough one. Mm, Yes, and I think look at the big picture and think, okay, well, I am actually under pressure here or or so-and-so over there is under tremendous pressure and so what they say and do may not be reflective of what they would say and do in less pressured situations. Jessie, you have a long-term plan to add to your caring. Can you talk a little bit about that? Just in brief, what do you hold for your future as a wildlife carer? And I guess I'm reflecting here on your education or your studies. Yeah, I mean, I definitely have no plans on giving it up as tough as it has been at times throughout the last few years. It's something that, as as we established in the beginning, it's made me feel so much more fulfilled, I suppose. So it's not something I want to give up. And through my studies, I'm studying a Bachelor of Environmental Biology. So I just want to learn a bit more about what species I'm working with and what they rely on, what is going to be the changer, I suppose, to help them survive in such a changing world and just kind of improve my practices in that. I'd love to get further into education about it as well. Wildlife and the environment has kind of become my life. So to be able to take part in something ongoing where I could be inspiring that kind of relationship between the environment and our wildlife and the public would just be a dream. 
because it's so important and I really want to be part of the change in people's perspectives for that. And as we know, you know, the old adage, knowledge is power. So I guess keeping on learning can be a part of maintaining courage. And I wanted finally, Lynn, to talk with you just briefly about the idea of courage and to acknowledge the role of courage and to perhaps allow carers to celebrate their own courage as a part of coping with the larger pressures. Looking at focusing back on your strengths is incredibly valuable and the courage that I've seen with the work that the carers do is extraordinary and I wanted to do whatever I could to help because of that. It's incredibly um, valuable. It draws people towards that but it also is the underpinning of what keeps their health is focusing in on their strengths, that this may be overwhelming and all the rest of it, but this is a really courageous, meaningful thing to do. Jesse, Drew Smythe and Lynn Page, I'd like to thank you both so much for coming on Wildlife Heroes, Caring for the Carers. It's been a real pleasure to dive in deep with you into some of these ideas and experiences. And listeners, if the discussion today has brought up strong feelings, please call Lifeline on 131114. And you can find a range of mental health resources and support on the Two Green Threads website, which we mentioned earlier. That's T-W-O, green as in the colour, threads, all one word, twogreenthreads.org. And you can keep up to date with what's happening with Wildlife Heroes at wildlifeheroes.org.au. Don't forget to spell that heroes with an E because I sometimes do, but that will help you get to the right place. And don't forget also there are lots of other episodes in this series, so do go revisiting it. And while you're at it, share us with your friends, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd really like to hear from you. I'm Gretchen Miller, and we'll see you next time.